It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over. I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Yes, go and say to this people, Listen carefully and do not understand. Watch closely, but do leave not, learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people, plug their ears, and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 10. You may be seated. Good morning. And before I get started, I want to tell you a little bit about what's on the back of your program. One of our ministry partners is the City Mission, and they are organizing an advocacy event uh, in the city of Cleveland on June 29th, and they've invited their partners, we and other churches throughout the region, to participate with it. It's called a homeless stand-in, and what they're looking for is 3,000 people that can stand in and advocate for the homeless throughout our region. Where did they get the number 3,000? Well, uh, 3,000 is, is Cleveland City Schools number for how many children in their school district that, they, that are recorded homeless. And so they are inviting us to be a part of that. It's actually going to be a fun event. There's, uh, there's kids, you know, family uh, activities and all of that, uh, music, rock bands, the whole thing, food trucks, all of that. So we invite you to come out with me on June 29th to participate. Uh, there's a table out there that says go. It's a go table. And uh, we have uh, two ladies from the city mission that are here to tell you all about it. Uh, so you can sign up there or ask any questions that you would like. We'd love for you to join us. Uh, for that. As we approach now, as we reach in our series, uh, the, the series God is Stranger, we're, we're coming now into the book of Isaiah, into some of the prophets, and 
Uh, as you've noted probably throughout this series, we've been covering all different parts of the Old Testament. So now we're in the book of Isaiah, arriving to the prophets. What was read for you was Isaiah 6. And so if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible, you can just turn there to Isaiah chapter 6 because we'll hang out there for a little bit. But then we're going to be going to all different kinds of places. And so if you like to search through your Bible and find different things, this is going to be a great time for you as we uh, cover all kinds of different parts of the, the, the scriptures. When I was uh, a seminary student, I was uh, placed at a church just outside of, of Ashland, Ohio, uh, with kind of with the Amish. I wasn't assigned to be a, an Amish pastor, but uh, I might as well have been because there was Amish all around. It was this little church out in the outside the rural areas of Ashland, uh, and it was sort of a small little aging congregation. It was, it was a great place for me to be as a seminary student. But I was confronted with a lot of problems, cultural issues, because I uh, had a hard time identifying with, these, with my congregation as I, as I soon realized. Number one, I was a, sort of a young guy and in seminary. I was learning all of these things and coming up with all of these ideas and really grasping a vision for how God was moving the church here and now. And, and, and these were just, this was a community of people that just to love, keep it, love to keep it simple. You know, they sort of live their lives and um, that was their, their worldview. And they were also a, a rural culture, and I'm kind of a city guy, so I, I realized right off the bat that I was going to have some translation uh, issues. And so I had an idea one day for a sermon that I was going to highlight something in the scriptures, and I was going to use one of the congregation members as an illustration of a shining example of how he was living this out. It was a good fellow. I knew he was going to show up because that's what you do in that, in that culture. You just show up for church every single Sunday. You'd never miss a Sunday. So I knew he was going to be there, but I didn't tell him that I was going to use him as an illustration, thinking it would be a good idea that he'd be pleasantly surprised. Well, so I, I'm going along in my sermon. There he was sitting in his pew, and I was going along in my sermon, and I was getting to that point where I was going to have him come up and show the whole congregation what a shining example he was. And so I finally get to that point, and I look over to him. I'm ready to call him out, and there he is sleeping in the pew. Well, in fairness to this guy, listen, he was a hard, hard worker. I mean, even at an older age, this guy was a really hard worker. I didn't have any ill feelings towards him because I knew this guy worked his tail off and he's coming in Sunday morning and, you know, I was, I was the one blabbering on. I mean, that would put anybody to sleep, I think. So, you know, I had a lot of sympathy for him, but I didn't know what to do in the moment because this is what I had planned to do was bring him forward and everything. And so just thinking off my feet, I just, I called him out. Uh, but extra loud to wake, kind of wake him up. And I said, Don, would you come forward to join us and share? Now, this is a small little sanctuary. And so he, you know, perked right up and wondered what I, what, what I was doing. It came up, and I, I think the whole thing, you know, worked out pretty well. But all of that was really kind of a, a symbol for sometimes what, what happens. Uh, I'll speak for myself as a pastor, but I, I suspect that this is true for a lot of you that are trying to live out your faith, that God has given you a call and, you, and you're trying to live it out and engage other people along the way. And maybe God has called you specifically into the lives and to encounters with specific people and you're, and, and you're living out that call, you're answering that call, you're going to, to share that with them. But what you get is just resistance or distraction or ambivalence. 
That as much as God has called you out to, to say something and to do something in the world around us, it can be frustrating when we're not heard or understood or received in the way that we hoped we would as God, God has called us forth. And so this is the exact experience that the prophet Isaiah has when he gets called by God. Now, there aren't a whole lot of call narratives like this that we read about in Isaiah. I mean, think about all the detail that's incorporated. It gets a little weird, doesn't it? I mean, there's different creatures coming and burning coal on his lips. And, and we get this idea that there's this sort of a majestic presence that happened. That, that Isaiah is in the presence of God. And it's so majestic and it's so awesome and it's so far above him that all he can do is think about his own humanity, his own sinfulness. He's, Forgive me, I'm doomed, the scripture said, because I'm a sinner in the midst of a holy, holy God. And I'm a person, a prophet among sinful people. And in dramatic fashion, the seraphim, this creature, comes and takes a coal from the altar and burns his lips and purifies him and says, your sins are forgiven. And then it goes on further and, and in almost this huge dramatic fashion says, whom shall I send? We get this idea. Well, there's no one around. <laughs> and Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Wow. What amazing call experience. Exactly how it went for me going into pastoral ministry. Let me tell you. <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't. And as much as it was filled with drama, majesty, and power, the next line is, is really strange to us. He says, it says, and he said, go and say to this people, keep listening, but do not comprehend. This is a quotation, so he's quoting something here. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. So in other words, God calls him in this dramatic fashion and then says, well, yeah, but nobody's going to really listen to you. No one's going to respond to this call, to this message I'm giving you. This call that I'm giving you won't be effective in the way that, that you think. It has to be discouraging. Because in the midst of this, my assumption is that God would call him to be effective. Isn't that how we think? If God's going to bother to give us a calling, certainly he's going to call us to do something effective, right? That there be some fruit to this labor that God is calling us and, and putting us. God would not call us to a fool's errand. Would he? But this is what he explains to Isaiah. And so Isaiah has the same response I think I would have. He says, that, that it says then I said, how long, O oh Lord? You know, like when you're called into a meeting <laughs> that you don't really want to go to? How long is this going to take? How, how long am I going to have to in, endure this? Put up with this that you're sending me to. And then God gives the explanation, verses 11 to 13. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. 
In this series, God is Stranger, I hope by now you've gotten the idea that, the, that God being a stranger to us is, is on one hand a really good thing, but on the other hand brings all kinds of problems with it. It's a good thing because God is so far above us. God is God. And it should stand to reason that if God is who we believe God to be and we are who we believe ourselves to be, then there's some things that are gonna be lost in translation along the way, isn't there? We're not gonna fully grasp God. We're not gonna fully get it. There's a big difference between who God is and and who we are as his people. And so God should come as a stranger to us sometimes. There should be mystery in faith. God should not show up exactly how we expected God to show up each time. God shouldn't play along with our expectations or our assumptions of him. And if he would, and if he does, we run, we run the risk of perhaps God being made in our, our own image. Of course, God doesn't follow along with, with our, our expectations. And so it should come with a little bit of tension. And you've been, we've been learning this all along the way in the various parts of the scriptures that we've been addressing in this, uh, in, in this series. And really this falls right in line with what happens to a prophet. Isaiah being a prophet, being called a prophet was a messenger, and next week I'm going to go into a little bit more length about what the role of a prophet is as we talk about Ezekiel. But the prophet really was the mouthpiece for God, representative of God, sharing God's word to the people. And in the Old Testament, we've, we sort of find a trend that, uh, in the Old Testament that whenever a prophet would show up into town, it was not good news. God had a complaint or an accusation towards the people that they were not living according to what God had asked of them. They were not upholding the covenant. And so prophets, by and large, they serve as the mouthpiece for God's enforcement of their relationship. The mouthpiece of the enforcement and the upholding of the relationship uh, that, that, they, that they have. And so God offers a complaint that we find in, in the book of Isaiah, or all the way in, in chapter one, um, starting with, with verse 11. He brings his charge to the people, Isaiah 1, 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of, of goats. And he's saying here, how you have been expressing your faith, how you have been living out, how you have been doing church is not good enough. It's not acceptable to me. And it reveals a little bit later in verse 15 why that is. It says, when you stretch out your hands, I'm sorry, verse 16, wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil, from your do- evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. 
And we get this idea that the people, while they were giving lip service to God, while they were coming on a Sunday and worshiping God, they were not worshiping God with their lifestyles. They were not worshiping God the other days of the week. They were not going to God and living for God, and that's what God wants. He wants wants his people to be true and to be authentic, not to go through the motions, not to simply offer the sacrifices as if that's going to suffice, but to truly live it and to truly mean it. And he does the same thing in Isaiah chapter 53 and and 58, I'm sorry, in speaking about fasting. Fasting is another expression of faith. People today fast uh, on a regular basis. I fast on a regular basis as an expression of faith. It's taking on a, a temporary scarcity in reverence and honor of God. And it says in verse three of chapter 58, why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble yourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all of your workers. God is speaking in terms of a word that we we throw around quite a bit here today, and the word is, is justice. Justice. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, and it gives us this idea. Uh, it's a judicial term. It's, it's very much a courtroom term. But it talks sp- specifically or gives us this notion of uh, an equality or an a fairness of God, the fairness or the equality of God. And refers even to an order that God has established uh, for uh, his people. When I was in seminary, I was taking a class called World Religions, and I had a, a kind of an interesting professor at the time, and he thought it was a really great idea to take us on a field trip to Dearborn, Michigan, which is the lar- one of the largest Middle East populations uh, in the country, in a lar- very large Muslim community. And so we went to a, a mosque and toured and asked a lot of good questions, and all of the very, it was all you know, very interesting, ate at a really great Lebanese restaurant, and... Uh, then my crazy professor had an idea of dropping us off in, a, in an Iraqi neighborhood and going door to door evangelizing to them. Uh, that didn't go so well for me. Um, but on the way to that, I got a ride with uh, a ministry partner that our professor had linked up with. It was an evangelist to the Muslim community and spent some time in the Middle East and uh, was now in Dearborn, Michigan. And he was an evangelist, and that was his perspective and his, and his worldview. And we were talking. I was picking his brain as I was riding along with him in the car to this neighborhood. And when he stopped the car, he asked me a question. He said, can you tell me something about your generation, about your contemporaries? It just seems like a lot of you are into this trend of social justice. And I stopped, and I kind of stammered through an answer didn't want to get into a big old conversation right then and there, but I left away feeling a little discouraged and very confused about why justice would be referred to as a, as a trend or a, a trendy thing amongst young people. We find justice and the concept of justice all throughout the Bible. I mean, it's really everywhere where God establishes and cares deeply for how we are treating other people. The justice and the equality of people 
is at the, at the very heart of God. And it shows up in lots of different places. And I wanted to share with you an example that we find uh, in the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is full of the, the rules that God is establishing for the nation as he's forming the nation of Israel. And there's all kinds of different rules and regulations. And here's one of them in, in, in chapter 23, verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field. So if you're harvesting, if you're a farmer, you do not reap to the edges of your field or gather gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the alien. And then I love this next part. I am the Lord your God. And each time we get these these commands and these rules that are established and they have this sort of declaration. This is, God says, this is who I am. And we have this connection uh, linked very directly of I want you to practice justice for the people that are vulnerable in your midst and you're doing so because this is who I am. I'm calling you to practice justice because this is who I am. I am a God of, of justice. And so that's one example that we find all littered all throughout the scriptures God being a God of justice and God calling his people to, to reflect that. And so in this, what we find is Isaiah and, and, and what we find how God addresses his people, mostly through, hey, listen, you're not getting it right, <laughs> whether it's through a prophet or other, other people, spokespeople, angels even, usually fall into two things and we find this sort of order. Now, I'm gonna show you a little bit of a, a, a visual of, of, of what God is getting at here, and it's really charted out and sophistic, sophisticated and all of that. It's gonna be really complicated, so you're gonna have to really let it sink in, okay? Um, I spent a lot of time on this. This is what a, long, a big seminary education gives to you guys, okay? So here it is. God is God, people are people. I know, earth-shattering, right? God is God, people are our people. Is it really as simple as that? Well, let's think about it for a second. God is God. How many times do we find this violated, this simple truth, God is God, violated throughout the scriptures? Let's go all the way to the beginning. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, they're tempted by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. What does the serpent say? Some of you know this. The serpent says, oh, never mind what he said about this fruit. You can eat of it. He's just afraid what? That you are going to be like him. He tempts them directly with the seduction of being on an even plane with God. And that's what they fall victim to. Fast forward a little bit in the Old Testament, we have people that gather themselves together and say, hey, if we build a big tower, then we can build a tower that will reach the skies, reach the heavens, and we can storm heaven's gates, and we can be gods. And what we find is that God thwarts their plans by confusing them, they're speaking different languages and they end up scattering, which by the way, we find in Pentecost is the exact reverse of that. People of different languages coming and the work of the Spirit speaking the same language. Moses is going up to the mountain to get 10 commandments for the rules for the people. And he comes down, he finds Aaron and the rest of them, they've made a golden calf and start worshiping it. God is God. I talked about Gideon in our series here. Gideon, he was really meek and humble at the very beginning when God called him out. 
And then he got a little confident, and then he got overconfident very quickly. And people started wanting to worship him, and he made a little ephod, a little jacket for himself, a golden jacket, so people could worship him instead of God. We find the violation of this top one all the time in how it's termed as idolatry. But there's also a connection with the bottom one as well. That people are people. That when it comes to God, we are all in the same boat. God does not play favorites. When we even find God calls and presents himself even majestically like Isaiah, and, and it seems as though God is favoring Isaiah in the moment. Isaiah knows better. Because I am not worthy of this, of this moment. And we learn that God specifically calls him out because he has a job for him to do. And that's what we find all littered throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. God does not play favorites. And anyone who begins to think that they're any better than anybody else, that is called pride. And the Bible has something to say about that as well. Littered throughout the Bible, we find that spokespeople for God who are speaking on God's behalf have something particular to say about the powerful and the rich. Why? Because they are more easily seduced into thinking that they are more important than others. Jesus came, to, uh, Jesus came specifically to challenge the religious elite of his day and address the powerful and the rich among them because they had begun to think that they were a little bit more important than they should have done. Even the early church... Um, even uh, very uh, courageously so, begins to reflect this equality among people, even in the midst of a society that was constantly trying to create a a hierarchy. In Galatians uh, chapter three, verse uh, 28, in Galatians chapter three, verse verse 28, it, it says, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And we don't don't appreciate how radical that statement was in that day, that the communities, the Christian communities of faith were undermining the very hierarchies that society around them had been creating. And if you notice this in a little bit more detail, you'll see that there's no longer Jew or Greek speaking about race and ethnicity. They're no longer slave or free talking about class or socioeconomic status. There's no male or female talking about gender. And what are three main ways in which we as a society tend to create a hierarchy amongst ourselves? Race, socioeconomic status, gender. God is God and people are people. We are on the same plane. And so as we begin to challenge ourselves and ask ourselves how to live this out, that God is God and the people are people, are people it, it, it expresses itself in, in, this, in this way that in inequality with God and an equality with people. Inequality with God, we are not God, and an equality with people. Inequality with God presents itself uh, primarily in the act of worship. 
And in the ancient world, worship was sacrifice. Sacrifice was the main act of worship. You brought things, sacrificed them to indicate to God that God was God and that we were not. And so they would bring all kinds of different sacrifices, some on festivals, some in special occasions. There were uh, offering sacrifices of the first fruits. There were offering sacrifices to say, thank you, God. There were offerings and sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. There were sacrifices of remembrance, uh, such as the Passover festival. And it became so important. It was so central to the community of faith, even in Jesus' day, because the Jews were scattered out throughout the region. People would pilgrimage, pilgrimage into Jerusalem just so that they could participate in this, this act and this event of, of worship, recognizing that God is God. And that's what we do here. That's what we sing about ultimately, isn't it? When we sing about God's praise and glory and we give God adoration for who God is, isn't that what we're doing? God, you are God. You are so high above us. And then we often couple that with a confession because we realize deep in our hearts that when we lift up God, praise to God, we're reminded, just like Isaiah, of our own humanity. And boy, are we sinners. Boy, are we human. Boy, do we need God in our, in our lives. So inequality with God manifests itself naturally in, in worship. Inequality with God expresses itself in humility. I love uh, Philippians 2.3 um, where it says uh, in chapter 2 verse uh, 3 it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, regard others better than yourselves. And this is this truth, people being people, equality with people playing itself out. And so to keep this order, to maintain this order, to uphold this order, we worship God to keep God on the throne. And we recognize our own humanity and we come before God in humility realizing that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. But what we don't anticipate, what we don't recognize so many times, is that how we worship God and how we connect with God is intricately connected to how we treat one another. And this is why God goes to Isaiah to speak to the people, to say that you can go to God and you can worship, but it's not gonna mean anything because what, how you treat one another is also worship. Take a look in Romans chapter 12, verses one through five. And it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship. And it goes on, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in the linking this paragraph, all in the same section, it says, for as in one body, or for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And it goes on, for as in one body we have many members and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. One, we are one. 
and individually we are members one of another. And in the same section, we get this plea to worship in the same vein, a plea to remember that we are one. And there's no better expression than this than when Jesus gave us the greatest commandment. We find it in Matthew chapter 22. And they ask Jesus how to, uh, what they can do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus gives them this, this, this command. And many of you know it. You know it by heart. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, and the second is like it. And in the Greek, that word, that, the, the phrasing, the verbiage, uh, also gives us the idea, and the second is interwoven with it, is, is connected to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you cannot separate. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you are not loving your neighbor as yourself, then you are not loving God. And if you are not loving God, then you are not loving your neighbor. They are linked together and not separate. Krish Kandaya, in the book that has informed these messages called God a Stranger, uh, he says this, Jesus summarized the whole of the Old Testament law in a single combined commandment to love God and love your neighbor. This is why Abraham's hospitality toward and honoring of God were shown to be inseparable. This is why Ruth's commitment to a widow in distress and dedication to Naomi's God went hand in hand. This is why David's psalm combines his zeal for God with concerns for his people. And this is why true worship must always be about welcoming God who is, the, who is stranger and welcoming God in the stranger. They are tied together. And so in talking about worship, if you thought maybe this would be a plea for increased attendance on Sunday morning, you would be wrong. The worship and the honoring and the reverence and the glorification of God goes so far greater than this hour on Sunday morning. It's so far greater than the songs that we sing in listening to a sermon. It's so far greater than this individual one-hour segment where we gather together. And let's be honest, this is our primary gathering point, is it not? This is when we all assemble and we come together, and it's easy to think, this is church, this is worship, this is what we do, we, we worship. And God deserves that. God deserves that we come together and we lift up praise and, and lift up our hearts together for him. But Lord, forgive us if we go right out these doors and we begin to craft a life for ourselves. Lord, forgive us if we go out these doors and whether through our actions or our inactions, we live unjustly because we leave the vulnerable among us to themselves to fend for themselves when God says, I love and I care for these people. I love and I care for these people. These people are who Jesus died for. And so I want you to go out and I want you to love them in the way that I love them. That is worship. So I hope that you would consider perhaps what you have been doing and maybe need to do more, 
perhaps consider um, where you've been asleep in the pew. Not literally. Hope you're not asleep, anybody? But just sort of going through the motions. Just sort of there. We have ladies at the back table that are organizing an event with our ministry partner in the city of Cleveland to stand up for homeless children in our region. That's a start. Kim, who read the scripture for us, leads our, our, a group called Friends for Freedom dedicated to fighting human trafficking. And we have made connections with, with three or four organizations in our region that are on the ground doing just that. We have relationships with uh, sisters and brothers in Jamaica that are planting churches and organizing and growing in that, in that place, Jamaica. We have all kinds of ways. And I, I hope that you would consider if you find that void in your, in your life of, of not pursuing the justice of God, that you would, you would join us. But don't make it limited to that. Maybe God would put something in your mind. Maybe you are on your way to work every day and you go by the same homeless person and you keep your eyes straight forward and ignore them. Maybe God's calling you to do something there. It's so much bigger than this hour on Sunday. God is calling us to be acts of living praise. He is calling us to not just lift up praise and glory and honor to him, but to do that as we share God's light to the world that he loves. Consider that God loves us too much to be content with just one hour on Sunday. Let's pray. So God, speak into our hearts. Lead us into hearts of praise. And let, let this time where we lift up our hearts in song be just the start. And let, let that praise flow out out of our lives every single morning, every single day. And God, as we open up our hearts to you, I trust that you, Holy Spirit, are going to send an opportunity our way, a conversation, a smile, because that's who you are. You're always working. Let us be your people. Let us be a people lifting up praise and let us be people that praise you as we share your love to the world. This is our heart and this is our prayer, not according to our own ability or strength, but because of who you are. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us? As the Lord has gathered us together in worship today, the Lord is sending us out to live lives of obedience and love, to love him and to love others. So we're gonna sing a song of dedication together in commissioning. Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name. 
Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Sing holy. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. the law and the prophets hang on these. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.